It is funny, I remember I had a good friend in college who he used to say, he would be reading in uh, his Bible and he'd say, gosh, you know, sometimes I read Paul and I just, I feel like I get it. And I read the words of Jesus and I'm like, why is he talking in riddles all the time? Um, and it's true, and I think Jesus did that so that people like myself would have a job. Um, uh, now, let's, uh, let, let's go to the Lord in prayer and asking that, that he would help us to understand uh, his word. Father, your word is truth and it is light. And it's the darkness within us, it's the sin within us that keeps us from understanding it. It is the darkness and the sin within us that um, keeps us from fully loving and appreciating it and seeing it for what it is. And it, and it creates confusion in us. And so, Father, we ask this morning, as your people, that you would come and speak powerfully to us, through me, uh, through the power of your word, through the power of your son, we ask, Spirit, that you would come and help us to see truth uh, in this passage, that it would breathe life into us, and, Father, it would send us on our way, the way of the truth and the life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, my original intention for January was to actually follow the series that, that dad was doing and I was starting Psalm 127 and I had I was really running with it and then uh, we came down with COVID and so um, I appreciate Zach and James uh, stepping in for myself and um, anyway I thought what else can we do I have no idea what to do I'm not going to start in the middle of a, a series and it probably won't make any sense vision wise and I've always loved, and I'm, I'll talk about this again, but I've always loved this, these two passages from John 3 and 4, um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that uh, in a bit. But, but, you know, as I was thinking about this section, I was thinking about how, you know, our world loves experts. Uh, we're full of experts. There's um, experts in economics, there's experts in, in politics, there's Experts in health and nutrition. There's experts in communication. Uh, so many experts. And uh, you've probably seen these uh, exchanges between people on social media where you'll see someone write something like, uh, I think 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, and then a person will respond to them by saying, it wasn't, trust me. Uh, and then the original poster will write back, how do you know? Are you an expert? And then you read the profile of the person that had responded, and it says that they are the head of the Foreign ter uh, Terrorism Task Force, and they're some sort of terrorism expert. Well, they're an expert, so they probably do know. Uh, or you'll, you'll see someone that say, you know, I, I don't believe we landed on the moon, and then some astronaut will respond on Facebook and say, take my word for it, we did. Um, we tend to put a lot of stock in, uh, those were jokes, by the way, but that's okay. I won't be offended. Um, we, we tend to put a lot of stock in, 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 in what experts say, and that's normal. That's a normal thing to do. We expect a lot from experts. We expect that they know their stuff. We expect an expert to have an answer for hard questions in their particular field of, of study or whatever it may be. But sometimes the expert doesn't, doesn't know their stuff. 
and, and they're really uh, faking it till they make it. And, and that's what we're going to see today with our man here, Nicodemus, an expert who doesn't know what he should know. Uh, and he has to be put in place by the true expert, who just happens to speak in riddles. Um, so this is uh, part one of a two-part series. Again, as I said, we're going to do on uh, chapters 3 and 4 of, of John's Gospel. And we're looking at the encounters between Jesus and Nicodemus, and the next week between Jesus and the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. Um, again, I've always been intrigued by uh, at this disparity between uh, these uh, Jesus' interactions with these two very different people, which is how I came up with uh, the, the title here, uh, Building Bridges and Creating Chasms. What do these interactions tell us about Jesus? Uh, what do they tell us about the kingdom of God? And what do they tell us about ourselves? You know, Jesus sort of he flips the, the power script, uh, so to speak, uh, in this narrative that's taking place. The, the ones with power, Jesus tends to put at a distance. And the, the ones without, Jesus draws in. Uh, now, that obviously would not have been common in those days. Now, today, because of the influence of Christianity, uh, you can't find a movie today where the hero isn't someone from a powerless or disadvantaged position. Uh, but there's a, a, a massive difference between uh, the way that Jesus handles a person with power or, and a person without power versus the way Hollywood will treat uh, tend to sort of make the, the powerful person this uh, horrible uh, monster of a person while Jesus, he handles the powerful person in a certain way, but, it doesn't, it, but he still has an open invitation as we see with Nicodemus. So let's start by looking at our character, Nicodemus. We're told that he is... A man of the Pharisees. He is a ruler of the Jews, and later he's described by Jesus himself as the teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus at night. And now I always thought this was because uh, Nicodemus was afraid to be seen with Jesus or, or, or uh, whatever reason, that it was a, some sort of fear association, but the, the scripture doesn't say that. Uh, and in fact, there's evidence that Nicodemus doesn't really care what the Pharisees think of his interaction with Jesus. Um, when they want to arrest Jesus, it's Nicodemus is the one who stands and says, doesn't the law say that he deserves a proper hearing? Uh, and then at Jesus' uh, death and burial, Nicodemus is the one who's there uh, to, to wrap him up, to bind him up. So he's probably... If we're looking at the historical evidence, he's probably just visiting Jesus at night because he knows that Jesus is busy with ministry during the day. He would understand that. But even more so, it fits in with this theme that John has in his gospel of light and darkness. If you remember in John's prologue, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was, the, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it's a theme that John is beginning to build up. 
And here is the leader, one of the leaders of the Jews, and he is the one in total darkness. And he comes to the light for understanding. The exchange between Jesus uh, and and Nicodemus has always been a a challenge for me. I have to read it like four or five times over just to kind of catch up with what's happening. You know, Nicodemus makes a statement and then Jesus gives an answer to a statement. And you sort of like, uh, Jesus, just wait, buddy. Just wait for the question. Let, Let the question come before you jump ahead, right? Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. As if to say... Jesus, we see the the power of God here. We see God's active reign in these miracles. We we see the kingdom in a sense. Uh, We see you are from God, and we see what you are doing is from the active reign of God. And Jesus tells him essentially, Nicodemus, you, you don't understand anything. Nothing. You are in darkness. You think you see the kingdom, but you cannot see it unless you are born again. Nicodemus thinks because he's seen uh, a miracle that he has seen the kingdom. He thinks as long as I come from the right family, as long as I keep the, the, the religious externals, Those are what qualify me for entrance into the kingdom. And Jesus is telling him, you have to be born again. But what does that mean? I think Nicodemus understands that it's a metaphor. But what is it a metaphor for? What is he trying to convey to us? It sounds as if Jesus is promising this brand new beginning. But how can you have a brand new beginning? That's the one thing you cannot do, right? Surely a man cannot enter his mother's womb a second time. So what is this newness? What is this newness and where does it come from? Well, Jesus repeats uh, verse 3 in different terms in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, as if the riddle's going to get easier somehow, unless one of you is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Great, so we've added new uh, terminology to our riddles. Uh, What is water? What is spirit? Uh, Is it birth waters? Is it... uh, Waters of baptism? Is it spiritual, uh, spiritual baptism? It all seems to be connected to Old Testament as it relates to uh, the purification and the, and the new life that flows from, from God's arrival. A, a, a cleaning up and a being empowered by the Spirit. And we read in Ezekiel chapter 36... I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This new birth is a new origin that cleans you up and empowers you to live differently. And unless you are cleaned up by God, not yourself, and empowered to live differently by God and not yourself, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, one would think that the Old Testament scholar, the expert, that he would understand this, that he would understand Ezekiel 36, and that he would see what Jesus' ministry is doing, and he would make the connections. But like many experts, he, he doesn't get it right away. And so Jesus gives two more metaphors to help explain further. Help. <clears throat> that which is born of flesh is flesh, Jesus says. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is another way of just saying, uh, like produces like. Humans give birth to humans. And humans are fallen and sinful. So how could a sinner produce a saint? How could a, a sinner produce uh, a child of God? In the sense that we, we walk with him and we're, we're um, conformed to him by his light. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus, when I say you must be born again to receive the kingdom of God. Because natural birth isn't going to do it. Natural birth plus education and reading the Old Testament scriptures won't do it. Natural birth plus being a good Jew and trying to keep the law, it won't do it. You may mean well, you may strive in what you do, but it equates to nothing. You cannot enter the kingdom until you have been cleaned up by God and empowered to live differently. Transformed with a new nature that only God himself can give by his spirit. Then Jesus gives a second metaphor. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see the effects, but you don't know the origin. You see the effects, but you don't know why and how it comes about. That's how the Spirit works. You cannot unpack in great detail what the new birth is, but you see its effects. It's unthinkable, according to this teaching, that someone is born again and you don't see any of the effects. Where people are cleaned up, where, where people are empowered to live transformed lives, 
You, you see the effects. The terminology that people use changes. Priorities in their life change. Relationships and the nature of relationships change. Your love changes. I have a friend uh, in Australia. His life was a total mess. Uh, he'd gotten his girlfriend pregnant. Uh, he was addicted to alcohol, addicted to pornography. He was violent, mean, angry. And then he was reborn. Not like that process. But, but then, then his verbiage, his, his word uses, uh, usage changed. Uh, he put a lot of those things from his past behind him. Not to say that some of those things aren't still a struggle, but, but, but he was able to move past them because he was being called into a transformed life. I think the, the challenge here for Nicodemus and the reason that the chasm is being built is because a, a person like my friend, you know, you look at him and you go, well, yeah, that's not a big step to have a transformation to be a sort of an angry, drunk, uh, abusive person. To then becoming, you know, a, a saint of sorts. He, he's a minister now. But you, a person like Nicodemus, you know, who's grown up in the church. He's grown up. He knows all the information. He looks great on the outside. He, for him, it doesn't look like a big step. And Jesus is saying, it is a big step. You still have to be reborn, Nicodemus. So the promise of the gospel not only includes justification, the, the, the being declared righteous by, b- before a holy God because of what Christ did for us on the cross in bearing our sins, it also includes regeneration and, and, and rebirth and renewal. It's not just that we have a new legal standing before God. We're also empowered by the Spirit of God to change, to transform. Whether that might look like a great deal or might look like a little bit, it's still a massive transformation. You, you can claim new, new legal standing all day before God, but where is the evidence of the wind? You may be the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, but you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. If you look over uh, the first century Jewish records, there are tons of reflections and, and speculation on lots of Old Testament issues, not least of all the law, what God requires. How do you live under this or that legal principle? What is an appropriate approach to the temple? And on and on and on and on. There's tons written on the law. What there is little reflection and study on are the passages that discuss the coming of the Spirit in life transforming power. You are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. How? Why is Jesus able to speak like this in this way? He says, if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. His ability to speak to the teacher of Israel with more authority is not because he's able to perform miracles. It's because he knows what he's talking about. It's because he's talking about the kingdom of God. And he is the only one who understands it and can tell us about it. So don't listen to the boy who uh, thought he went there and God made a mistake and sent him back. Or the man whose heart stopped for a few minutes and he, he says he saw a great light. They weren't there. We don't need their testimony. We need Jesus' testimony. Because he's the only one with authority. And he's the only one who makes access to that kingdom available. How? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember the story from uh, Numbers chapter 21. uh, the, The Israelites in the desert... There are a few parallels here between what's going on in that story, which is why Jesus uses it. One, the Israelites uh, come in judgment of God, and they think that they have a right to judge God. We don't like the food you give us. We don't like the way that you are treating us. Nicodemus, in a sense, is coming in a form of judgment. We know that you are a teacher from God. You can kind of pick up on a little bit of his... His tone, his sarcasm. I think that's probably why Jesus doesn't wait for the question. He just sort of answers him because he knows what he's thinking. This uh, revelation that the Spirit would have given him. And yet the funny thing is that we do this with God too. We put him on trial. And we tell him what we think of him and not in a praiseworthy manner. Second... God provides a way out of judgment. He tells Moses what to do to put the the bronze snake on the stick. He then heals all those who look at the snake, not those who work hard to be better or to do better. And it's the same today. It's based on all those who look to the one who is lifted high on the cross. So the new birth is grounded in the cross of Christ just as much as justification is. So we come to the question, why did God send Jesus to bring about this new birth? Is it because I am cute? Is it because I am awesome and and totally worth saving? I think all of you know the answer to that question for myself. The entire reason that God did this is because God loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to be the equivalent of the serpent on the cross, the serpent on the pole. And we, we, we get this picture of just how astonishing it is that God God the Son would leave heaven, come to earth, 
for one purpose, to save mankind, to save us. People who have turned their backs on God, no matter how good we may think we are in our own eyes. People who were just like the Israelites in Numbers 21, who curse even what God has given by His grace. And we don't deserve that. And yet, God's love is measured by His giving of His Son. People say, well, how do I know that God loves me? How? Yeah, prove it. He did. It's right there. It's the cross. It's, it's the highest example you could find. Something He didn't even have to do, and yet because of His love, He did. And the purpose of God's love is that we may have life. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the means by which we come to enjoy this love is faith. Verse 16, whoever believes. Verse 18, whoever believes in him. And then John ends this section, and uh, we really should have read all the way to verse 21. But John ends this section with this light, dark contrast again. Verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true and comes to the light so that it may be be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light shines in the darkness. The woman at the well we'll look at next week, you know, go and get your husband. Well, I have none. No, you're right. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with is not your husband. Why does Jesus embarrass her? Why not just talk about forgiveness and then move on? And leave it and, and don't touch it. His light exposes our darkness. Whether it's lust or greed or idolatry or pride or selfishness or fear or anger or malice or bitterness or envy. It doesn't matter what it is. He is the light and the light shines in the darkness. It's what light does. Light shines in the darkness can't help but do that. And we fallen creatures hide from the light for fear that our deeds will be exposed. What does verse 21 say? By contrast, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that what? That he actually walks in the light? That would fit the parallel. The one who runs from the light does so because he's afraid that his deeds will be exposed, right? The one who runs to the light does so because he makes a good decision? No. That it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God gives new birth. God gives the transformation. God changes us. 
That's why Christianity is always corrupted and corroded when we try to reduce it to a set of rules. Congratulations, you did it. Here's your escape pass from Jesus. Now hang in there, we're going to have a few rules. Even those of us who have a good understanding of the gospel, just when we think we have it all figured out, we are in danger of losing it. Because the second you think you have a really good understanding of the gospel, you start to congratulate yourself for having a really good understanding of the gospel. And then pride and self-centeredness kick in. Look, this is just a reality. It's this for me. When the Spirit is at work is where we come to the light because of what God is doing in us. Not because of what I have done or am doing, but only through what he has done and what he is doing in me. And that's why this chasm is created between Nicodemus and Jesus. Because Nicodemus thinks he is far closer to obtaining the kingdom of God than he actually is. He's looking at the externals. He's looking at his works of righteousness, which are really just filthy rags. And Jesus says, no, Nicodemus. Go back to the beginning. You need to be saved first. You need to be reborn first. So the expert in the law and theology is actually no nearer to the kingdom of God than the woman who's having an affair and has five husbands. We judge by these external appearances as well. Who does and doesn't fit in at church? Who does and doesn't look the part? But does the transformed life have real evidence? Love? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And while the rebirth happens once, the shaping and the fruit and the evidence comes by process. The daily dying to self, the putting on of the new man, the new creation. That's the evidence of the reborn life. That's why we gather here and we sit under the authority of the word and we allow it to penetrate and we allow it to speak to us and we allow that light to shine in the darkness. So that day by day by day by day by day, we are growing in sanctification. We're growing in understanding, but we're also growing in wisdom, knowledge, and grace. And that we get to exhibit that, as Seth was saying earlier, we get to use our own words to speak that life and that truth to others as well, as we speak it to ourselves, as the Word tells it to us. And that's our reality. Let's pray. Father, I confess even yesterday in a moment of frustration and anger towards a neighbor and I had to sit and even think about the words I'm going to share today 
and how they ministered to me. That that is the old nature, that is the old me, and that I need to die to that. That I need to be reminded the forgiveness that I have received and how great it is, how far it f- it's far greater than any forgiveness I could give to another person. And so, Father, whether we felt very near to you by the nature of the family we were born in or whether we feel very distant from you, we know that you are calling us to yourself and you are calling us to die to self, that we can see the great chasm that we all have And yet, even still, you are drawing us in nearer, nearer, nearer. That once we've experienced that rebirth, that regeneration because of the cross, that we are growing in our love for you, that we're growing in our knowledge of Christ, that we are putting on the head of Christ, and we're going out into this world reminding ourselves of these truths, speaking these truths to one another, and even showing the lost the light of Christ. So, Father, be with us this week. If we, as we take on all these great challenges we face, and yet, as this passage has reminded us, it's not our works, but it's you working through us. And so, Father, we invite you to come and do that work in and through us, that we would be a blessing to many. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing.